Jill Briscoe is to sense her heartbeat for God, for family, and for friends. I couldn't say it better. Jill has written over 40 books, including study guides, devotionals, poetry, and children's books. And by the way, they are, will be, a lot of them will be available after Jill speaks out in the narthex or whatever you call out there, and she would be happy to sign them for you too. And besides, she is also a regular contributor, along with her husband, Stuart, and son, Pete, to Telling the Truth. And if that's not enough, she's executive editor of Just Between Us, a, a magazine for women. And also, she's my constant companion as I listen to over, the, over 800 of the sermons that her husband, Stuart, Pete, and she, I have on my iPod as I take my daily walk. And if that's not neat... I don't know what is. I could go on telling you more and more about Jill, but I'm just so anxious for you to hear her message. Jill, it's all yours. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I'm a little surprised to find you all uh, and delighted because I've heard about this Bible study forever and didn't know I'd have the privilege of coming and joining you for a morning. Um, I hope already you realize that I'm uh, not from America. <laughs> um, as I talk on, um, amazingly, I've lived here for 42 years that um, I still sound British, I believe. But that's who I am, and uh, I'm just going to share a little bit of who I am and where I came from, not because it's that interesting, but because then you perhaps will get a flavor of what I want to bring to you from the Word of God. I don't know if you've noticed that there is a little, looks like, cult happening in America. All sorts of things are appearing with keep calm, carry on. Have any of you noticed any of that in your stores, in your t-shirts? Good. Well, you will. It's obviously coming down the state. Let me tell you what this is about. It has a little British crown on the, on the front of it. And I remember a speech called Keep Calm, carry on at the age of six. And the man who was giving it was Winston Churchill. Let me tell you about that. The age of six, I'm a child of that Second World War. I lived in Liverpool on the beach, not a good idea. We were bombed every night. I can't ever remember sleeping in a bed just in our little air raid shelter. My dad had dug for us at the bottom of the garden before he went off for six years in the Air Force. So I remember not too much, but enough of the trauma of living uh, in that situation. I was home from school, sick. I was six years of age. My mom was playing cards with me when the radio, and of course, pre-television, pre-everything else but radio, the radio came on. We always had to have it switched on full, day and night, because at any moment, we were expecting the invasion of the Germans from France. The sign they were coming were the bells in the churches of England. The bells in the churches of England, right across this, the place, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Britain, were not allowed to ring in the, uh, that period because they were the sign the invasion had become. And so I can't remember ever hearing the church bells ring um, in, in that period, which of course they, they didn't. But there came a point when they were about to. And those of you that know anything about the Second World War will, uh, perhaps from your history books, remember that Churchill told Britain 
that the invasion had begun or was about to begin in a very famous speech. And I heard that speech. I was homesick from school. My mom was playing cards with me. The radio was on full time. It stopped. There was a big beep, rather like your emergency signal that comes on here. Gives me funny feelings every time I hear that, incidentally. Um, it came on, and my mom put the cards down and said, shh. And I, she told me afterwards, I never took my eyes off her face. And she realized she had to keep absolutely calm and carry on whatever she was about to hear. And so she just stayed very still, and we listened to that probably most famous of all Churchill speeches. They're coming. We can't stop them. We have nothing but our hands to fight with. We will fight on the beaches. We will fight in the streets. We will fight house to house. We will never surrender, etc., etc. Then he told those of us that were living on the coast of England to pack a suitcase and get ready to run. And that basically was the speech and the end of it. At the end of it, the music comes back on. My mum is just sitting there, looking into the distance. I had a sister who was at school that day. And I said to her, Mummy, where do we run? Where will we run to when the Germans come? And she said, not really talking to me, where do you run in a little country surrounded by water. Incidentally, a little country no bigger than Tennessee. That's how big England is. England is, without Ireland, etc., etc. And so then she went off to pack our little suitcases and stand them in the hall, ready for the church bells to ring. What we didn't know until this began, and apparently this speech, because of the Olympics, I don't know, was uh, all over the place, and the story of Churchill and all of that was, was there for the tourists, I believe. What we didn't know, there was also other preparation other than the bells telling us they were coming, and there was nothing we could do about it but to fight in the beaches, etc. There had been posters made with this written on them, millions of them. And they had been placed, some in those churches, others in government buildings all over England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. These were to be uh, distributed, you to go to all these places if the bells rang and they were coming and get a pile of them. And we were to plaster them all over our country, in the streets, on trees, on our homes, so that when the Nazis were running all over our lives, they would see all over the place, keep calm, carry on. That's the story. After the war, when the Germans didn't come, and we never had the church bells ring, as you know the story, uh, they were destroyed, except one pile of them. And two years ago, in an antique shop, somebody bought the antique shop and found in the cellar this pile that had never been destroyed. And they thought, that's nice. They didn't know the story. They made a frame of one of them, put it in the London antique shop, and everyone that came in said, I like that. I'll buy one. <laughs> and so there are now millions of those things all over Britain, all over Europe, and come to America. So I have things with keep calm. People just, I'm inundated. I have a house full now, please stop, of keep calm. And this was the latest last week. They're now making mugs with keep calm, carry on. Keep calm and carry on. How do you keep calm and carry on when you're in a war? How do you keep calm and carry on when you don't know if your daddy is ever coming back? How do you keep calm and carry on when you don't know God, which I didn't, I can't ever remember going to church apart from the official times my school went. By law, Britain, everybody had to go to school prayers at Church of England by law. And I am so grateful there was no division of church and state because this little English schoolgirl would never have heard of Jesus if it was not in my school prayers every day. Even though my headmistress from my very posh exclusive 
British school would say, no, I don't believe this, you know, this God. But we are going to say the Apostles' Creed together. And I was only six, but I do remember thinking, you know, there's something wrong about that, about this lady saying she doesn't believe in God and then leading us in the Apostles' Creed. But I was only six, so what could I do with that? But I'm grateful for it because it's pretty good theology. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Potter's Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. All the way through. And there was a day in my little air raid shelter. At the height of the war, my sister and mummy and I just holding each other and crying, crying as we heard the bombs exploding. And it's something terrifying when you cannot see and only hear. I don't know. It's more frightening. If you can see it, somehow you see it. But when you only hear it, and I just, I just panicked. And I thought, I've got to pray. I've got to pray. What, what do I pray? Who, who, what do I pray? And so the only thing I had was the Apostles' Creed. So I started praying my way, thinking, well, that's sort of a prayer, all the way through it. And I prayed to God the Father, and I prayed to God the Son. I prayed to God the Holy Ghost, we called him in those days. And my little mind stopped. I'd never heard of such a thing. Well, I'd said it every day, but I'd never thought about it. Did I believe in the Holy Ghost? Who was the Holy Ghost? Sounded like a sheet-shrouded spook that haunted English churches. But as my mind went off on this, there was another bomb, and I prayed to the Holy Ghost. And I prayed all the way through. I prayed to the Holy Catholic Church, and I prayed to the communion of saints. I just worked my way, because maybe somewhere this God in here, whatever it was, would hear and stop the bombs. That's what I was praying. Stop them, stop them, stop them. And then I sort of widened my prayer a bit. Don't let them fall on our house. And my sister, I remember this prayer. My sister's dolls and my my mummy's sewing machine, stop the bombs. And into my arid shelter came the Holy Ghost. My little heart stopped beating like this. And I literally looked up. Peace came. The person of Christ by his spirit. I didn't know that then. But I knew someone had come. And I relaxed. He'd heard me, whoever the Holy Ghost was, and, and it was going to be all right because he'd heard me and he was telling me it was going to be all right. Right? So I relaxed and looked at my mom and my sister. And, and so that long night came and I couldn't wait to get out. And I got out and you see all these lights, the dawn was just breaking when the all clear went and the, the stars looked like that. And I sort of thought, Oh, the heaven's got holes and all the lights shining through. And my next quick thought was, God doesn't have to paint his windows black like we do in case there's a chink of light. He can leave all the lights on in heaven. But on the heels of that, my eyes came down to the back of our house and a bomb had taken it. And at six years of age, I looked up at heaven and said, what? is this? What was that? What was the peace? And in a six-year-old mind, I began at that point with my questions. Who are you? Are you? I rather hope you're not. If that's what you do with answered prayers of a little girl teasing me. Couldn't you stop it? Didn't you want to stop it? Aren't you interested? Are you there? Are you fair? Do you care? Questions I am asked all over the world today. Same questions. And that began my journey in post-war England. Went to Cambridge. And nothing was happening at Cambridge and Oxford and Yale and Harvard and all over the world but this debate. Nothing. I mean, we did our lessons. But then we would get our mug of beer and go down by the Cam or in Oxford by their river and we would talk, talk, talk. Nothing but God talk. Is God. Who are the Jews? God's people, somebody said in my group. 
Well, I'm glad I'm not one of them, I thought. That's how he looks after his own. And the camps had just been opened, and the horrors had just been revealed. And every single student of my age was debating the existence, the person, the character of God. And somebody put in my hand a book by a man called C.S. Lewis, who happened to be a professor at my university. Never met him. He had just been converted to Christ. From atheism to agnosticism to deism to Jesus. He was on the BBC answering men and women's common questions. And his first book was actually The Weight of Glory. It was about heaven and hell. It was about his answers to the questions being given. What happened to you? What do you mean, conversion? And how can an atheist become a Christian? And what is a Christian? And he began to be the Wesley of my, my era. He began, like Wesley did in the fields, to gather the common questions of the people and answer them uh, at the beginning of Methodism. And C.S. Lewis, for my generation, was my Wesley, and our Wesley. And we didn't have to go to church, which we wouldn't and didn't, because we could listen to the BBC. And that question of what is heaven, what is hell, with one of his famous quotes, became my homecoming to God. One of his most famous quotes is, there is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and one day we shall get in. Very famous quote of C.S. Lewis. There is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and one day we shall get in. Actually, the correct quote is, and we shall follow our great captain in, inside. Um, I don't know where I got, one day we shall get in. It's somewhere in that paragraph, I believe. And I remember reading it, walking back and forth in my little Cambridge room with this hunger in my heart. You wouldn't have known it to look at me, my behavior, my appearance, everything about me. You would have said, that woman hasn't got a God thought in her head. Do you know what I was screaming inside? If only someone would tell me. If only someone would explain. If only, if only, if only. And I did not address that to God. I was a prayer, though, and he read me. When you don't know what to say, kneel down and be a prayer. Don't say anything. He'll read you. And he read me. And within a month, I was sick, rushed into hospital, and the nurse in the next bed to me, who was sick herself, led me irrevocably, totally, to Jesus Christ. She answered all my questions, actually, she opened her Bible at Revelation 3.20, very famous, Behold, I stand at the door of knock. Out of context, but it worked. <laughs> and she talked about the door, and as she talked about the door, I stopped her and I said, I know about the door. She said, how do you know about the door? I said, there is a door opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and one day we shall get in. She said, where'd you read that? I said, in this book they gave me, that my friend gave me. I, BBC, Matt, oh, she said. Lewis. I said, who? She said, C.S. Lewis. Okay. Yes, that door, Jill. And I simply said to her, can you take me through? Can you take me through the door, Jenny? Oh, yes, she said. And she did. She did. Now that is years and years. Look at me. I'm very old. Years, hundreds of years ago. Second World War, not the First World War. <laughs> not that old, but yes, years and years and years ago. And I retell that story, and it's just as if it happened now, all over again. Over 60 years ago, I'm 77 years of age, long time ago, 19 years of age, a Christian, from absolutely nothing, into Christ. Keep calm, carry on, said Jenny, who'd just led me to Christ, in different words. As she said goodbye to me, they couldn't figure out what was happening. They'd taken various bits out of me. They took my appendix, it wasn't that. This was scary. What were they going to take out next, right? But uh, I think God just wanted me in there to 
get saved because as soon as I did, next day, I'm fine, go back. So off I went back to face the music, and there was a lot of music. I lost all my friends. It was not a popular thing in post-war Britain to be converted, to be born again. Those, that, I never heard that phrase, actually. In my day, it was the converted word that was used. It'd say, what do you mean converted? Converted from what? Were you a heathen? Da, 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 da. And so, um, yeah, I had a, my best friend I shared a room with, that room, uh, never spoke to me again once I told her that I had been a Christian. I was just beginning my college career, so it was actually a great opportunity to learn to pray. No one else was talking to me, so I may as well do that. So that was good. <laughs> it was hard. It was tough. The college scene post-war was a battlefield. But what happened to me was I met God's best. I didn't know I was meeting God's best. I met these names that perhaps won't mean anything to you, but John Stott and Jim Packer and the theologians of my generation, the evangelical theologians who were all teachers or on the campuses in those days, arguing the gospel, the apologetic they brought to Cambridge and to Oxford. And InterVarsity Fellowship, which is a wonderful Christian movement, got hold of me. That's all that there was. And uh, I didn't know it. They followed me up. I didn't know what they were doing to me, but it was pretty drastic. Read 10 books, give me a book report in a month, you know. What, do all new Christians do this? Yes, yes, says Jenny. That was a lie. They don't. But they pushed me, and they crammed probably a seminary, and a half of my life into me in that four years at Cambridge, which was good because I never had a chance to go formally to be trained. But I was trained by the time I came out. And there wouldn't be a book that you read in seminary that I didn't read in that intervarsity college they brought to Cambridge University in my day. And so, I think back to the keep calm, carry on. And I think, Churchill, the one thing you didn't tell us, and you didn't tell a little six girl, because he probably didn't know, was how do you do that? How on earth do you do it? Well, you do it. People do it. Let me tell you. The Jewish people did it. Spent the last 12 years in the developing world and in the underground church. There are Iranians doing it, political Muslim Iranians being tortured to death for their faith are keeping calm and carrying on. It's amazing how people without Christ are so courageous and so brave. But none of them are doing it quite like those who have Christ within their heart because they can't. The very best that humans can do, and there is a best that humans can do, runs out when the storm really comes. When the storm they cannot do anything about but drown in comes. But the believer, the one who possesses Christ himself, they're the ones, incredibly, that keep calm and carry on in absolutely impossible days, not just with endurance, but with joy. Only God can do that. Only God can give you the power of joy to survive the worst thing that man can do to you. I think of Christians at this moment in Ivan prison. Pray for them women particularly, who are Christian people, converts, being put in coffins, alive. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them today. 134 more just arrested. Those that God has miraculously delivered, very few. Well, most he delivered to heaven. Thank God. A few he delivered back to earth and freedom. Very few. But those who are telling us are saying, <laughs> that peace, the peace that that little girl was given by the Holy Ghost, 
when I was six. The peace that passes understanding. Anybody can understand peace when everything's all right. But the peace that passes our understanding. Jesus, our peace, the Bible talks about. Our peace. They are telling the world, those people, hey, it's all right. If, please God, it never happens, but if, please God, it does, it's all right. He will help you to keep calm and carry on, whatever the storm and whatever the score. And I just want to remind you from the scriptures of a few of the principles of how does that work in our heart. And my mind immediately, of course, I could have spoken about Job, but I'm not. Mark's gospel, weathering the storms of life, comes to mind. When the disciples are in this boat, and they are exhausted, read what's happened for a full two days before they get into the boat and the storm, and their nearly drowning experience in the middle of Galilee. Jesus has been teaching, teaching, healing, giving, and in the end, he's looking up at the hillside full of people and he's being pushed into the water, which was an experience he suffered quite a lot. And he gets into a boat, probably Peter's, and he continues teaching, 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 it says, all that day. After two days, actually, with most of the famous parables you and I know being given, he gets into the boat and says, let's get over to the other side. And then they meet the storm. Remember? This huge storm. Evening comes. He says to the disciples, let's get over to the other side. They leave the crowd behind. They took him along just as he was in the boat. I've always wondered what's just as, the, just as he was. Maybe he'd been on the road three days without a change of clothes or I don't know. Just as he was, they got in the boat. There were also other little boats with him. A furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion or a pillow. The disciples woke him and said, Don't you care if we drown? Don't... What are you doing sleeping on a pillow? What are you doing? Well, he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and says, Quiet, be still, the winds obey him. They die down. It was completely calm. Last time there was a tsunami, there was somebody down in Florida talking about what happens when there's a tsunami. It must have been uh, four years ago or whatever. And he said it takes 28 hours after a violent storm for the waves to completely die down. 24 hours. It was completely calm. That is probably the bigger miracle of this story. Boom. Absolutely. He says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? Why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? They were terrified. Yes, me too. <laughs> I would have been terrified. We would have been terrified. They were terrified. This is seeing God not as a fuzzy friend. This is seeing God as God. This reminds them Yes, he is my friend, but he is my holy, almighty, absolutely everything friend. He's God. He's creator. He created the wind and the waves. He'll tell them what to do. He's God. And they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They'd had a Job experience, if you wish. Oh, thank you, dear. That's fine. <laughs> thank you. They had had a terrible, bad, awful day. You know, remember that children's book, A Terrible, Awful, Very Bad Day? I can't remember. Some of my grandchildren, I would read that too. Um, and Job had one of those. It had to be a Monday. The first time I wrote a book on Job, it's the same one, it just came out again. I called it, it had to be a Monday. <laughs> because it says in chapter one, all on a day, all on a day, all on a day. So it had to be Monday, right? It's just one of those Mondays. 
all on a day. Have you ever had a day like that? This was a day like that for the disciples. And Job's story, in the end, seeking for answers to pain and suffering, and it says God allowed a physical storm to descend, just a physical storm of storms of storms. And it says God spoke to him out of the storm. God spoke to him out of the storm. And that's, I wonder if he allows storms in order that we get to the end of ourselves and our own resources and our whatever we're trying to do to cope with the squalls and the storms of life. And he just lets all of that loose. And we have one of those Job Mondays. And God will speak to you out of the storm. And that's what happened here. Sometimes he allows the mother of all storms in our lives in order that the father of all comfort will be experienced by us. And for some of us who are self-sufficient, for some of us who have coped with tragedy and pain and not done too bad, sometimes it takes God saying, okay, and the storm of storms to come in our lives. For us to experience God in a way we never could have experienced before the storm came. And that often happens in the human life today. So what was this? It was a sudden squall. It was the unexpected. Have we learned the lesson yet we are to expect the unexpected as we go through life? Especially those of us who are committed Christians in ministry, either lay ministry or training. Have we come to realize that we are to expect the unexpected, accept the unexplained, and not to waste the pain? Those three things. To expect the unexpected, certainly if you're trying to serve Jesus as a lay person or in, quote, professional ministry. Our background is business. My husband was a bank inspector, catching criminals in the bank for about, I don't know, eight years. And then he was, uh, I was teaching criminals in the classroom while he was catching them in the bank. <laughs> I'm a teacher, back end of Liverpool after college. And we met in the context of working with street kids. And uh, three years later, we left our professions and went to work with a youth mission, an outreach mission, for 13 years in Britain, street work, gang kids. And then from there, we came to Milwaukee, Wisconsin for 42 years, 43 years this year. My husband was pastor of Elmbrook Church for 30 of those years, and then when he was coming up to 70, we started the most challenging part of the whole of our life ministry, and we have been serving in that developing world situation ever since. So that's 12 years this year. And what I found as we work with church leaders, church planters, as we work with illiterate God people, <laughs> where the church is growing most, overnight 500 people, visions, dreams, all this stuff, but no church planters, no disciples, no Bibles, and anyway, they can't read. This is happening in the poverty and the developing world, okay, and the illiterate world. What, what is happening is the church that either God himself by miraculous power is bringing to be, or the very handful of missionaries and people that are out there are planting is not surviving. We are developing a dysfunctional church, actually, because we are not doing the watering. You know, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered. God, only God makes it grow. So there's no Apollos out there. There's nobody uh, out there yet. N not for the breadth of what God is doing out there. And what we find, what we find when we get out there is that when we, when we work, uh, figure out what's needed and come back and get people to match the need, that's one thing that we do, uh, resource them. 
But the other thing that we do is we stay there for a month or two months or three months, and we find out that what they need more than anything else, even if they can't read, is this. This is where it's at. And what I've found in my teaching out there is just, it, how do they learn stories? Illiterate people learn through storytelling. So it's no good actually standing up and exegeting the scriptures or unwrapping scripture. You've got, to, you've got to do a story. That's how they learn. They sit in their tents in the desert, and the stories are passed down. And so this is the story, isn't it? Isn't this the grand narrative? You know, creation, fall, redemption, glory. That's it. That's all she wrote. That's all he wrote. That is the gospel. And it is in the parables of Jesus I have found my best bet of what I do for a month or two months teaching out there very first teaching that I've ever had, has to be in story. Has to be in story. And I remember sharing this in Cambodia after the Khmer Rouge had finished what they did with the killing fields. I serve World Relief. I've done it for 22 years. And so somebody on the board would go where there was a holocaust or whatever and find out what the churches here could do to help, etc. I happened to be in Cambodia with my husband, actually, there, doing a film for World Relief in the Killing Fields. <laughs> and my little interpreter was standing in the Killing Field, which is the monument. They've left it as it is, except they put uh, a glass monument with 3,000 skulls in it, glass. And that's where we're trying to start this film for World Relief. And my little Cambodian 23-year-old is just standing like a statue. And I just looked at her and I said, this is ridiculous. Let's get you out of here. I am so sorry. This is stupid. I don't know who asked us to do this. Come on, let's get you out of here. And she said, it's all right, it's all right. It's just that all my family are in there. 23. This is a long time ago now. And uh, she said, no, I want to do this. I want to do it. So she was with us for that month. And we were doing this video work and uh, work with in the slums of uh, Phnom Penh. And one night I said to her, Seema, how did you ever come from Buddhism to Christianity? How did you ever, because of what happened to you, with all your family being murdered, your dad was the doctor and your mom was the teacher and they had glasses, that meant they were educated. Everybody educated in Cambodia was killed in that awful Holocaust. How did, how did you ever believe in a good God? And she said, well, maybe because I was a Buddhist. And I said, tell me about that. She said, well, at least the Buddhists have got something right. We know that we live in a fallen world. She didn't use that word, but that's what she meant. We are taught we live in a world that is not right. It is not the way it ought to be. That's the first thing we learn as children. This world is not the way it ought to be which she said presupposed when I was a student, there must be a way things ought to be. And I began to search. If things are not the way they ought to be, is there a way they ought to be? And what happened? So God was working in my Buddhism. And the other thing Buddhism did for me was teach me to handle suffering. And I said, tell me about that. And she said, well, we in the East are so different from you Christians in the West where suffering's concerned. She said, when suffering comes to you, you say immediately, get this off my back. Heal me. Save me. Stop it. Right? I said, right. Immediately. <laughs> she said, we don't do that. We say, God, strengthen my back to bear it. Until and unless you choose to heal, to help, to save. Wow. And I said to her, Seema, your theology is right. It's a biblical theology. You're right. Expect the unexpected, accept the unexplained. Submit to whatever storm you're in, even if Jesus is seemingly asleep on a pillow. Because when he's seemingly asleep, he's actually obviously awake. 
So when God seems to be sleeping, what are you doing sleeping? I'm in a storm. I mean, don't you care? Aren't you there? Yes, you are. You're sleeping. I believe you're there, but you're sleeping. Wake, wake up, God. Stop my storm, right? And he says to them, where's your faith? If I'm in your boat, I'll take care of the storm. And if it's the last storm to get you out of there, because I know what's ahead of you and it's worse, it's all right. I'll take you home where there's no storm ever again, where you're safe forever. In the new heaven and the new earth, that's where we're going. And so, accepting the unexpected, I think when I came to Christ, I believed immediately that that meant I'd never have any more storms in my life. Somehow, I mean, if I was now one of his favorite children and he loved me, you know, and he was just there to do what I wanted him to do now, yes, then it'd be fine. And as soon as I became a Christian, my whole world began to fall apart. Literally. And then when I got into Christian ministry, well, if you're working with street kids and gang kids and things like that, you can expect it to be tough, but I didn't expect it to be as tough as it was. Then I got married and had children, and I expected, because I worry that the children would fall into the washing machine and drown. You know, I'm a real worrier. I just think up things to worry about. Uh, but I did expect my children to be all right. Yeah, right? And they grew up and got married, and they all married Christians, and I, I didn't expect a divorce. Not in my son's first church. I didn't expect to be a grandmother that never saw her grandkids, unless I went to the supermarket because they might be shopping. I didn't expect that storm. I mean, after all, I've served you all my life, Lord, right? Where were you, sleeping on a pillow? That's what the disciples thought, and that's what we disciples often think. So why? Job asked it, why, 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 why? And God spoke to him from the storm and said, then listen to me and I'll tell you why. Look at me and you'll get it. You will be quiet. You've been asking me why, 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 why? Now I'm going to ask you. Why didn't you trust me, Job? Why didn't you this? Why didn't you that? And strangely, storms strengthen your faith if you respond to them and not react against them. If you say, Lord, where are you in this storm? May I know you better. It's a bit like the thorn in the flesh bit. Have you ever sorted out the thorn in the flesh? I'm still struggling with it. Three times Paul asked for healing. Many times he'd been healed, he says. Many times he'd been the conduit of healing for others. But there was something physical apparently wrong with him, and it was hampering the ministry. Most people think it was his eyes and an eye disease, because he writes in one of his letters, do you see what large letters I'm using? I wrote this myself, and it seems to be from other areas. It could have been an eye disease, but I'm glad we don't know so that we can all be part of this thorn in the flesh thing. So he asked God three times, Lord, this is really hampering me. I really need to be writing the Bible, you know. <laughs> I can't, because I can't see anymore, so obviously you need to heal me, right? And God said, no, let me send you away with something to wrestle with. How did God say no? Now, there's a wrestling thing for those of you that like to wrestle with theological conundrums. How do you say? What do you hear? A voice? No. Could have done. God can speak through a donkey, right? <laughs> How did God say no? Because that means I have to wrestle with, am I willing to hear no? And how's he going to say that to me? Human sort of voice in my head? I don't trust those voices. I'm very creative. 
And the voices I hear in my head have to be coming from this, matching this, or we're in trouble. Okay, then I go to this, and actually this doesn't help. <laughs> because I come to a story like this, and Jesus says to me, Jill, why do you worry? What's the matter with you? I'm in your boat. Do you think I'm going to drown? Do think God's going to drown? Jesus said, I'm going to sleep in the storm. I'm not going to drown yet. Not my time. Now he did drown on the cross. All of us will drown before we go to heaven. But we'll only do it once. That's nice. Gives me comfort. We'll only do it once. So it's trusting him that you cannot go to heaven one minute before it's time. Well, that takes a load off your back. I was sitting in a plane on 9-11, not a good place to be, trying to get back from Siberia to Chicago. Stuart had gone on to India, left me in Heathrow. So I'm sitting there, and we're all asleep, and the pilot comes on and he says, we have an emergency landing, uh, put your belt on, da 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 I don't know what it's about. All I've been told is I have to get you down again to Newfoundland. And that was that. Everybody woke up with a hurry, I tell you. And we all dive for the thing that you never read, that, you know, what to do in times of emergency. <laughs> God. And if you fly a lot, you never read it. But I read it. Everybody read it. We all went for the emergency thing. You know. My heart was going like this. I had a young doctor, a heart specialist, sitting next to me. We'd been talking before we all fell asleep that night or day. I said, what do you think it is? He said, I don't know. I said, I think it's the plane. I said, I do too. Because there was a horrible noise, and he was emptying the gas into the ocean because there was too much to land. But I'd never heard that before. And he'd never heard that before. He flew a lot. And so we reckoned that he wasn't telling us. And so I sat there, and everything went quiet. At first, everybody all around, you know. And then everything fell silent. It was very interesting. On every level, this experience was interesting. And all of us were busy with our own thoughts, I guess, and prayers, I guess. My Bible was up above me, and we weren't allowed to get it. And that's the last time I ever left my Bible in, in the thing, ever. So all I had was here, by the way, which is why we have to continue memorizing till we see Jesus face to face. Uh, but it's certainly enough of it was here. And I said to the Lord, speak to me. And I knew he'd use his word, which he did. Psalm 139, verse 16. Every day ordained for you is written in my book before one of them comes to be Jill. Every day ordained for you is written in my book before they come to be. So then I begin this conversation. Even 9-11, Lord, even 9-11. Okay? So you knew this was going to happen, of course. So what did you write in your book? What I wish you to do with this situation. What I wish for you, Jill, to be my woman, in what's ahead. I wrote that, what I really wished for you. And I wished for you peace. And I wished for you joy. And I wished for you trust. And I failed him at every single point. So after 60 years in ministry, missionary, minister, teacher, I failed him. So, sorry, Lord. And you know how I failed him? We hadn't eaten. This is where I began to fail him. I did a bit better after this. But we hadn't eaten since I left Siberia, and I was hungry, but I grabbed some cookies at, uh, uh, at Heathrow. 
and I had them in my bag. Okay. So the pilot says, I'm so sorry, I know you haven't been fed since you left for breakfast from the airport, and we're going to be on the ground 12 hours when we land in Gander, Newfoundland, because there's nobody to uh, process us. It's not an entry level, it's just a refueling center, so I'm sorry. And they're going to seal the airplane, because apparently they're looking for people and they can't let you out. So I've come from Siberia, stopped over to get another plane. I'm here, and I've eaten once, and so had everybody else, okay. There were children, there were old people on that plane, etc. So my first test, there were two kids screaming in front of me. There was an old lady who was weeping quietly into her handkerchief. And I know the Lord said to me, why don't you share your cookies? And then you could say, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> well, not, not quite like that, but you could, you know, if they did say, why are you doing this, you could say, well, because I'm a Christian. You know, it might open up. It might all get saved. And, okay. And the other voice, always two voices, says to me, why don't you wait till everyone's asleep? and then nibble them all by yourself. And folks, that's what I did. That's what I did. Jill Briscoe, that's what I did. Soon as I had finished the last cookie, you can imagine the guilt and the shame, quite rightly. And I said, Lord, I ate my cookies. How could I have eaten my cookies? We all eat our cookies. It doesn't matter how long you've known the Lord and how much you've grown in him. Disciples ate their cookies, shaking him awake. What are you doing letting us drown? What are you doing letting us drown? Remember, there were other little bo boats with them, very important. They were all watching the big boat with Jesus in. And when something happens like this and you're the only believer around, all the little boats are watching you, if they know you are a believer, right? They see you eat their cookies. You say, that's a little thing. No, it wasn't. I served world relief. I fed the hungry. What am I doing eating my cookies? I, I've gone where it's hungry and stayed hungry because I have food to give people. But the devil gets you. He gets you on the most little things because it's not really a little thing. I wrote a piece not long ago, all apples are apples. It was Eve arguing about how big the apple was. All apples are apples. Little apples grow into big apples, right? So a lie grows into deceit, and uh, anger can finish in murder. All apples are apples. So if we allow an appetite, which is what I did, to govern my actions, that's the heart of what I'm sharing with you. That's called sin. Right. Sin. So you call it what it is, and you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'll try and do better. Good. You could do with doing a little bit better, Jill. Let's try again. And I had six and a half of the most incredible days of my life in Gander, Newfoundland, on the floor of a Salvation Army church in the middle of nowhere, with 418 of my compatriots from 80 different countries. Think about it. Nothing to do but talk and cry, and use the opportunity for Jesus. But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't started to trust instead of panic and worry and take things into my own hands. I'm hungry. I need to feed myself. It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had that experience. So I learn it strengthens my faith. Misery leads to ministry, I have discovered. Misery leads to ministry. So the fact that our son went through a punishing divorce, we lost our children, our grandchildren. Misery, talk about misery. I know many of you 
connect with that. Absolute misery. But it has lent to a ministry to people like me who are grandmas and also to young couples and to the children of divorce that I never would have dreamt of taking on my own. That ministry comes to you because when he gets up and he stills the storm and he helps you to quit worrying and panicking and everyone's watching, they will beat a path to your door and ask you, how'd you do that? Yes, they will. Yes, they will. It's a magnet. Misery in the hands of Jesus. The storm, the squall, it says, a sudden, violent squall when it hits you. Try and just say, help. <laughs> help. And expect it. And the help will be there. He is the helper. Holy Spirit, one of his names. Helper. He's here. You don't need to call him. You don't need to invite him. He's inviting you to remember where he is. He's in your boat. And when he's seemingly asleep, he's obviously going to be awake. Let me tell you that. He knows exactly where you are. He's written on a clean page in his book on you. This is what I wish for them. I wish for a faith. I wish for peace for them. I wish that they would be so in my hands and take the opportunity, whatever it is, that this squall has presented to minister out of that peace into other people's lives. And it sounds always wonderful, and you say, well, I'm not that sort of a Christian. Uh, none of us are that sort of a Christian. None of us are that sort of a Christian. I remember one of the hardest things I ever did was to leave my husband to, he had, he, he had got seriously ill, but we didn't know what it was. He was in Mali. We were in Mali, West Africa. And uh, he was going out into the desert area with some missionaries, and he got this whatever it was. Well, it turned out it was typhoid fever, but we didn't know that. There was no doctors or hospitals or anywhere around us. And so I said to him, he had this terrible temperature, I said, Stuart, can you just not stay in the city until this gets over? He says, I have to go. The only one way to get me out there is this little plane that's going, MAF plane, and I have to go. And I had to get on a plane and come home uh, at that point. And I remember sitting on the plane thinking, I've done this all my life. I've always lived my life missing someone. Stuart was away 10 months of the year in our mission days as he planted that mission all over the world. And I brought up the kids. It was uh, hard, but it wasn't as hard as the things I've done since, like this, of leaving my husband in that situation. And I remember getting on the plane and just saying, Lord, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I just can't do it. And it was a storm. It was a squall of doubt and giving up and I've done my bit, let somebody else do it, all of that stuff. But it was on that plane and I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know how sick he got and he got sicker and sicker and sicker until he's in the middle of nowhere and why he didn't die, nobody figured out, because there wasn't water to drink. It was only well water, and that's how he got sick in the first place with typhoid and um, all of that. And God did choose to leave him. He's now 82 years of age. He's in the Philippines at the moment, and he's typical us. Wherever we go, we shouldn't, because something awful happens. Did you see the news? There's a tsunami about to hit the Philippines. <laughs> I turned the TV on yesterday. I said, what? He just got there. He just texted me, just arrived in the Philippines. I said, oh, thank you, Lord. You've got him there safely. I turned on the TV. Yes, there's a tsunami coming. What? <laughs> so it's one of those things. But you know, those have been the hardest things for me, the relational things, the, the price that sometimes, what price is it to the price he paid for us, but the price of people and those I love and and this time, it was the hardest, I think, in my 
57 years of marriage to put him on a plane in Los Angeles and send him to the Philippines. It never gets any easier. Never gets any easier. But it's in these times, I would not trade it for anything because the peace comes. And I've been trying to worry, and I can't. I can't. What is this? It's the peace of God that passes understanding. So I don't know. Maybe I've brought you a little bit of encouragement if you're a worrier. You know, let me tell you one story and then I'm through. When I was at the mission and he was doing this traveling and I have three children, I have a nursery school and a drug work and I'm, I'm busy enough to keep me happy. Um, my first child did not speak till he was two. This could have been because he couldn't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> I refused that thought. And it did worry me, being an educator, that he'd just go, mm -mm, and noises and point. And yet, sometimes a little word would come out, and I'd think, I don't know what's wrong with this kid. And then one day, I was in the kitchen, I remember, he spoke. I stopped. Oh, my word. Not one word, but two words. Two. And I put him in the pram. And the big castle that was our center was up on the hill, and I put him in our little pram, and I ran up there into the office. Stuart was there that day with three unmarried secretaries who all looked up quite interestedly as I burst in with my child and said, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke. So Stuart looked up mildly and said, what did he say? <laughs> He's the bank inspector. He wants to know, you know, okay. I said, he said, oh, dear. <laughs> and then I stopped. And I thought, oh, my word. Where did he hear that? Right? <laughs> That's Jill Briscoe. Worry, 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 fear, 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 fear. And I wouldn't swap everything God has given me little workshops for in this area for the, anything in the world because I seem to be constantly in the boat and the squall comes. And I've learned the peace that passes understanding enables me to keep calm and carry on. Only him. He is my peace. Is he your peace? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for my sisters and brothers that are here. And I can tell by the face turned towards me that they understand exactly what I'm talking about, of course. And sometimes my squall or my storm does not seem as big as their squall, and we think, well, I don't want to talk to anyone about my little squall. They have these huge, great squalls. But any squall that robs us of our faith and peace is too big. And so I pray that we would beat this in Jesus' name. Show us what to do to trust you, whatever comes our way. Remind us you are in our boat, seemingly asleep, but in control, knowing the extent of the storm the seriousness of the storm, the ending of the storm, knowing it all, it's your storm, Lord. You have allowed to come our way. Now help us do better. Help us do better. Help us lean on you and know that you won't fall over. Help us trust you and learn more about God in the middle of the storm in order that we might say it was worth it. For now I see you in a way that I've never seen you before. I know you in a way I've never known you before. And I have something to share with my world of comfort and strength and challenge. So Lord, help us when we eat our biscuits and fail you and fail ourselves. and Help us to be forgiven and put it behind us and get on and Next time the wind starts to rise, may we run to you, Lord, 
as our fortress, as our strength, and above all, as our peace. Please, Lord, in order that a watching world can say, how do you do that? How do you do that? It's what I need. I'm frightened out of my mind. I'm worried sick. How do you do that? Help us to do that, Lord. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.